Well, we are, as a church, we're in the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 9. We've pretty much taken a chapter a week. This is one of the few times where we've broken it up. Last week, my friend Dimitri from Resurrection Church in Tacoma uh, taught on just the prayer section of Daniel 9. But today, I'm going to kind of zoom out and teach on the rest of the context of the prayer, on the rest of the context of this chapter. And, uh, you know, if you've been with us, you know that Daniel is a difficult book. And you know that the second half of Daniel in particular is really difficult to interpret and try to understand. And of all of the difficult passages in all of the difficult chapters of Daniel, Daniel 9 is the most difficultest. Unless you think I'm just being hyperbolic, I've got scholars who back me up. There's a guy named James Allen Montgomery who's since passed away, but in the 1920s he wrote a commentary in which he says this about our verses today. The history of the exegesis of the 70 weeks is the dismal swamp of Old Testament criticism. Yeah, let's do it. Sidney Gradanus, another scholar who's living today and a pastor, he writes this. He says, although Daniel's prayer is easy to understand, God's response of the 70 weeks is akin to entering a bewildering maze. So many choices of ways to take, so many blind alleys and dead ends. Which is the way out? All the way back in AD 400, the brilliant church father, Jerome, simply listed nine conflicting opinions of the great teachers of the church and left it to the reader's judgment as to whose explanation ought to be followed. And that was long before rationalism, higher criticism, millenarianism, and dispensationalism. I know some of you are asking, like, what about those things? Yeah, there it is. Before they added their various opinions, today, one is confronted with a mind-boggling variety of options and combinations of options. I am not exaggerating when I say that we could probably spend the next four to six hours just going through the different options and all the interpretive possibilities of this chapter. That is not what I want to do. I want to first uh, present to you kind of a broad overview of the rest of this chapter so you can get a sense of what is being said and why it's so difficult to interpret. But there is one thing that I'm very confident about that this passage teaches, and I want to spend kind of the second half of the sermon really drilling down on that, okay? So this is kind of a part A overview, part B, one thing. So that's what we're going to do today by God's grace. And so I'm going to invite uh, Natalie to come. She is going to do our scripture reading. Uh, Will you guys open your Bibles to Daniel 9? Let's open our hearts to receive from God's word as she reads for us here this morning. Good morning, church. Um, This is God's word from Daniel chapter 9. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Amen. Father God, we give this time to you. We ask and pray that you would help us to know your love for us. God, we confess that there are things in your word that are difficult to comprehend and difficult to understand, but we trust that even by just diving in, 
You will meet with us and you will speak to us now. God, would you guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word and give us all hearts to receive that truth and to experience your grace firsthand. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Everyone said, amen. All right, back to Daniel 9, starting in verse 1. I know that Dimitri mentioned these verses last week, but just for context, here's what's going on. Daniel is reflecting in the first year of Darius the Mede, the son, I'm sorry, Darius, the son of Ahasuerus by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. That's another word for Babylon. In the first year of his reign, okay, so real quickly, Daniel was taken into captivity, he and his friends, approximately the year 605 BC by Babylon. Babylon has now been conquered by Persia. All of those visions that Daniel had or the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar had, they're all starting to come to pass. And so he's getting to see little glimpses of all these prophecies and these predictions starting to happen. And now it's the first year of the reign of this Darius. Best we can tell, scholars will say that this is the year 539 BC. So it's been about 65 years of captivity. So in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, yes, that Jeremiah the prophet, how many years must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem? Namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face. By the way, 70 years. How long did I say he's been in captivity? Approximately 65 years. So Daniel's reading the prophet Jeremiah. There was a controversy early on where one prophet got up and told Israel, hey, don't even worry about it. This exile, it's just going to last, you know, a few years. And Jeremiah goes, no, settle in. It's going to be 70 years. Daniel is in year 65, 66 of this exile. He's like, hey, we must be getting close to the end. So I, I, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And this is where we go into the prayer that he prays. And if you weren't here last week, go to the website, listen to the teaching. Dimitri did a great job with that teaching. I want to jump ahead to verse 20. After Daniel prays, he's going to get an answer. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. Sometime I want to do a whole teaching just on that idea of individual repentance and corporate repentance. We're far too individualistic in America. I'll just say that. That's the big idea for that sermon someday. I'm confessing the sin, presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Remember Gabriel? We saw him back in in chapter 8. And there's a few things that are really interesting. It says, Gabriel the man. But are we to understand that this is just a mere man? No, Gabriel is an angel, a messenger, a, a, a supernatural being. And next week, we're going to spend the entire time talking about Gabriel and Michael and Watchers and all of this supernatural realm that's happening. I just find it interesting that it describes him as a man. Whenever these divine beings, these these angels, are seen by human beings, they either look like just a guy, like literally, like just a guy. Try to ignore the, the glowing and the halo and the nuclear reactive sort of look that they have, like just a guy, a man. Or they do really look like a glowing fireball covered in eyes with four different types of faces and wings or like crazy, crazy things that make them fall on the ground like dead. 
He comes in swift flight, and there's a difficult word to translate there in the Hebrew. Uh, it's, the Hebrew word is either ya'af or ya'uf, and it's hard to know if it means he, he came flying really fast or if it means that Daniel was really distressed when Gabriel came. Depending on your translation, it might be one way or the other. It's kind of hard to know. But the thing that I love the most in this verse is where it says that he came to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice would have been offered in the temple in Jerusalem approximately three or four o'clock in the afternoon, kind of heading into nighttime. Do you know what Daniel has not seen for 65 or 66 years? The evening sacrifice. Do you know what has not even happened in Jerusalem for more than 50 years? The evening sacrifice. When Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and, and, and all of that, like there hasn't been an evening sacrifice. But I love that Daniel still counts the time of his day according to the worship of the Lord God. Isn't that beautiful? It's like he is truly in Babylon, but not of Babylon. It's like you can, you can take the boy out of Jerusalem, but you can't take the Jerusalem out of the boy. I still long to worship God in the temple with his people. I love that about Daniel. He came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Daniel, I have come out to give you insight and understanding. I'm here to share some things with you. He, he uh, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I've come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. You might not understand a single word in the rest of this teaching or the rest of Daniel chapter 9. But friends, can you hear that for yourself today? You are greatly loved. Therefore, think about my word, and and I'm going to help you understand this vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people, and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Need to pause right there. Okay, that's a lot. That's a lot. That is an action-packed promise. A few things about this. Number one, we see here this word, 70 weeks. The real word in the Hebrew underneath is the word sevens. It literally says 70 sevens. Now you can use your brains and you can use your logic to understand why if the Hebrew word seven, why has it been translated into weeks? Because how many days are there in a week? Seven. So the the phrase 77 means 70 weeks by inference, but that's not what the text itself actually says. And if you think about 70 weeks, how long is 70 weeks? About a year and four months, right? 490 days. But, but scholars would point to all sorts of ways that numbers are used in apocalyptic literature where it's, it's probably not best to understand this as a literal 490 days this weeks or this sevens more likely refers to a period of seven years. And I'll show you textually in a minute where this kind of comes from. So, so most likely we're to see this as 490 years, not 490 days. 
you got to remember, apocalyptic literature uses numbers in this very symbolic sort of a way. And look at all the amazing things that are going to happen. Uh, the, the, there's this phrase, it's going to finish transgression. What does that mean? I don't know, but it sounds awesome. <laughs> no, no more transgression. And, and to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, all three of those. Like, like sin will be decisively dealt with at the end of this 77s. Whatever that means, whatever the symbolism is pointing us to, there is some sort of thing, there's some sort of dealing with sin that will be unlike anything else anyone has ever seen. And number four, we'll bring in everlasting righteousness. What does that mean? Nobody knows. Well, we kind of know. Something is going to happen at the end of this 77s that will usher in a new age of righteousness, the likes of which the world has never seen. To seal both the vision and the prophet, that means something's going to happen at the end. A seal is like when a king would put his stamp, his official seal on a document. It's a certificate of authenticity. Daniel's having these dreams. Daniel's having these visions. Nebuchadnezzar's had dreams. Something is going to happen at the end of this longer period of time that will confirm the truthfulness of everything that he's saying and to anoint a most holy... Ah, it says place. In the Hebrew, there's no word place. Literally, it just says to anoint a most holy. So some of your translations will say a most holy place. That's something we see in the Old Testament. There, the temple, a most holy place. Some of your translations might say to anoint a most holy one. We don't know. Guess what? There's ambiguity in the text. And if you struggle to not know all of the answers, boy, you're going to struggle with Daniel. Boy, you're going to struggle with relationship with God, by the way. Just, just make sure I don't want to surprise you with that. It's tough. A most holy what? Okay. It's like, here Daniel saying, okay, thank you, Gabriel. Thank you for the 77s thing. I, I understand that the, the exile is coming to an end, but you're saying there's more. There's this like longer period of time and this longer kind of breakdown. And at the end of it, something really amazing is going to happen where sin is dealt with and a most holy something is anointed and where it's all going to be confirmed. Is it going to be an easy time or is it going to be a difficult time? Gabriel says, verse 25, Know and therefore, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven sevens. Okay. So there's an anointed one who's also called a prince. Then for 62 sevens, it, what? It shall be built again with squares and a moat. What does that mean? But in a troubled time, after the 62 sevens, an anointed one, well, is this the same anointed one or is this a different anointed one? Shall be cut off. Is this a good cut off or a bad cut off? And have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, well, who's this prince? Is it the same prince as the first anointed one or is this a new prince? Who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, that doesn't sound good. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Oh no! I thought that the exile was going to be the end of it. More desolations and hardships are coming. And, and he will, who? He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Was that good or bad? Who's the he? Is this the bad guy, or is this an anointed one? And the covenant for one seven? 
And in the middle of that seven, he will bring sacrifices and offerings to a halt. Well, is that, that seems bad. But then we're Christians. We know about the book of Hebrews and Jesus. Is this good? Is this a good ending of the sacrifices? On the wing of abominations. Okay, that one's bad. I know that one. It's good if it's a heavy metal band name, but it's bad in the context of history. Wing of abominations will come one who destroys until, it is decree- until the decreed end is poured out on the one who destroys. Okay, well, that's good. The one who destroys is going to get it in the end. Is everyone like crystal clear on all this? Thank you. All right, well, you're good. All right, let's just move on then. Let's pray and go home. I mean, literally. So like, uh, Tom, will you throw this chart up on the screen? Like, this is a sampling of the various interpretive options that come from these verses. So you know that something is weird. Like if you look on the left, the different issues, like what's the decree? Is it the decree of Jeremiah? Is it the decree from Cyrus? Is it Jeremiah's decree? Is it God? Like look down where it says Messiah verse 26 over there. You know that you have an issue with interpretive difficulty when some people say it's about Jesus and other people say it's about the Antichrist. <laughs> okay, if you want to know the answers, go find Jacob Godby after the service. He'll tell you. No, I'm just kidding. We have, I've linked up some articles. I've linked up some things that you can read and you can study more. This really is, I'm not exaggerating, one of the most difficult to understand passages really in the entire Bible. And so I want to just summarize a few things that I think that we can know about this. I want to put a pin in it, and I want to focus on one thing that we really do know. Here's what we can see kind of in any case. The seven sevens is this relatively short time of rebuilding. There's going to be some rebuilding. And we know from history that the people of Israel got to go back to Jerusalem, and they got to rebuild the city. Amen? Then the 62 sevens is a relatively extended time of trouble. Again, we know from history that there was a lot of trouble. The people went back to Jerusalem, but they they were still uh, harassed and oppressed by various world powers. It wasn't very easy. It wasn't smooth. And then this 1-7 is some decisively climactic time of salvation. And I would say for me, I, I view this seven not as some future thing to come with the return of Jesus, but primarily about Jesus' first coming, his death, his resurrection, his, uh, uh, his atonement for sin, and his declaration as God's righteous king. That's where I see it happening. Either way, it's still something really good, some climactic time of salvation. The theological point is this. Yes, the exile is coming to an end. More is going to happen And you can trust that God is sovereign in all of it. Okay? That's the big idea of the passage. Now, push pause. How are we doing? I'm just checking in. Is everybody okay? I hope, you know, if you want to download these articles and resources, um, you know, maybe maybe you and your spouse want to like read them together. I pray I don't cause any conflict in the marriage. If one of you opts for a more dispensational view and one of you is more on the Maccabean view, like just work that out in charity. You know, obviously these things can happen in marriages where it's like, I'm completely Maccabean, but she's Roman view and I can't stand it. You're like, you know, this happens, right? I, it does, yes. Uh, in some people's marriages, at least I've heard. So here is where I want to take us in the few minutes we have left. There is something going on with all these numbers, these sevens, that should start to set off alarm bells in our mind to go back and think about the way that the Hebrew Scriptures has told the story of the people of God thus far. 
And if you want to turn there with me, in 2 Chronicles 36, we are explicitly told something about the exile, something about the word of the Lord to Jeremiah and these years, okay? So here's the story, right? The people of Israel have gone into exile. Why? The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they, the people, they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people and there was no remedy. Friends, the the people of Israel broke the covenant with the Lord. And God is incredibly patient. God is more patient than any of us. God is more patient than all of us combined. Amen? But even still, he calls his people to account for centuries of unfaithfulness. So therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. Uh, There was no compassion. I'm just kind of summarizing. The, The vessels were taken away. The treasures were taken away. They burned the house of God. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. Verse 20, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they were there in Babylon until all of a sudden Persia shows up. Verse 21, here it is, guys. Verse 21, here it is. Ready? To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now the word Sabbath is a deeply biblical word. So here the chronicler is telling us that among other things, there's a Sabbath element going on here for why the people ended up in exile. Sabbath should immediately trigger for us Genesis 2, where it talks about the Lord creating all things. He created the sun, moon, the stars. He created the plants and animals, and he created all things. And then it says, on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Pop quiz, did God need to rest? No. But God is showing us something about the way that he has created the fabric of the cosmos and for us as humanity. By the way, Genesis 1, right? You ever read Genesis 1? He created, he does this stuff. There was evening, there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day. There was evening, there was morning the third day. There is no evening or morning in the seventh day. There's no evening and morning. And I think it shows us that humanity was created to enjoy God's eternal rest. We were created to be in relationship with God that is restful. Now, yes, there is still work to be done. God put Adam and Eve in the garden before there was ever a fall, before there was ever the curse on the ground, there was work. Adam was to uh, fill the earth and subdue it, to, to name the animals, to work in the garden. The text explicitly tells us. But there's a different relationship with work, was there not? Do you think that when, when the Bible describes God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, do you not think that that's a little bit different than the relationship that some of us enjoy with work and rest and God? Humanity was created to enjoy God's eternal rest. But obviously in Genesis 3, something goes very wrong. The man and the woman trust themselves, their own intuition, rather than trusting in the voice of the Lord. And there is a curse that is placed upon the ground, not upon the man, but upon the ground, that now work is going to be difficult. 
the phrase thorns and thistles. You're going to plant seeds. You're going to try to grow crops. But what's going to come up are thorns and thistles. Raise your hand if you've ever felt like that at work. Matt, this should be easy. Why is this not easier? Thorns and thistles. Some of you literally, like maybe you're a gardener and you actually tend your garden. You ever gone to your garden? Like, I just weeded you last week. What are you even doing, garden? I don't know how you talk to your gardens, right? You know, you play Mozart for your plants and yell at them. Like, speak nicely to your gardens, okay? Things are tough. Things are difficult. Things aren't how they're supposed to be. And so the story enters in and God starts giving these commandments of rest. And I see the first one by inference. It's not an explicit command, but we have to do daily rest. We have to do daily rest. Genesis 1, evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. Um, How many of you are thankful for the extra hour of sleep that was granted by the federal government on behalf of farmers everywhere last night. I mean, I'm assuming maybe some of you didn't sleep particularly well last night, but we all slept. And, and, and th- there's something just fundamentally human. Like, just think about this. God made it so that we have to be powered off for about a third of our lives. So there's, a, there's an implied commandment of daily rest. There's an explicit commandment of weekly rest. When God saves the people of Israel out of Egypt in the Ten Commandments, it's one of the top ten lists. You will remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You will experience weekly rest. You can read about it in Exodus. You can read it recapped later in Deuteronomy when the people are preparing to go into the land. God says, rest every week, one day out of seven. You, six days you will do your, the phrase is your regular work. And on the seventh day, you stop. Sabbath, stop and enter into rest. I spent some time with our friend Rabbi Matt this week and talking about some of this stuff. And he, he'll, he'll kick me if I don't at least remind you that the Sabbath means the Sabbath, Friday night at sundown till Saturday night at sundown. That is the Sabbath. We don't take the Sabbath and make it some other. It really is just Saturday. That's what the Sabbath means. But there are some deeper underlying principles that will apply to those of us who are not Jewish, who are Gentile followers of the one true God of Israel. But the point being, there's this weekly rhythm of rest. But then there's more. There's this seventh year rhythm of rest. In Exodus 23, God commands the people every seven years You take your fields and you let them just sit. Don't plow them. Don't harvest. Don't take stuff. Leave it for, it says, leave it for the poor and for the wild animals. Let me ask you a question. In an agrarian society where your very life was dependent upon crops and food growing, is that a difficult command? (laughs) I would dare say. Like, hey, work those other six years put together a storehouse, put together things. Maybe there's other fields that are going and these ones are going to rest one year out of seven. But then there's even more. There's this thing called the year of Jubilee where every seven sevens, you can read in Leviticus. I mean, it's literally the same language as Daniel 9. Seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, you shall let the whole land rest. You're going to cancel all debt. You're going to return back to your ancestral family land, all the indentured servants or slaves or however it worked, everybody goes free, all the debts are canceled, and it's just this great year of release and joy, and the land gets to rest, and the people get to rest. It says the slaves get to rest, the animals get to rest, the foreigners and the sojourners, everybody gets to rest on this 50th year. So, how did Israel do? Utterly failed. 
Rabbi Matt told me that there was, there's basically no textual evidence that Israel ever did even a single one. Leviticus 26, you can see when God is giving them the covenant, he, he warns them with this. He says, you know, if in spite of this you won't listen, but you walk contrary to me, I will walk contrary to you in fury and discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Verse 33, I will scatter you among the nations. What are we talking about in Daniel? Exile, being scattered among the nations. I mean, this isn't some like secret hidden thing. Like this is right on the surface. If you will not listen to me, you'll be scattered. Verse 34, then the land will get to enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate while you're in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbath when you were dwelling in it. Friends, listen. God sent Israel into exile for failure, among other things, to rest. Yes, there was idolatry. Yes, there is violence. Yes, there is sexual immorality. But right here, plain as day in the text, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the Chronicles, Jeremiah, and Daniel, God disciplined his people for failing to rest. It's almost like the principle of you can rest now, or you will be forced to rest later. Anyone ever had that experience? Burning the candle at both ends and the middle, and then why did I end up sick and have to like take a week off of work? Yeah. You're exiled to your pajamas. Yeah. Forced rest is a type of judgment from God. And there's always hope, but just... just Try your very best. Now, this is going to be really hard, you guys. Try your very best to engage your imagination and, and think about, dream about people who weren't particularly good at resting. Like, we're really going to have to do some exegetical gymnastics to find ways that this is relevant to our lives. Amen? So, let me just ask you this question. Do we ever fail to rest? Raise your hand if you are not particularly good at resting well. Ha! This is church, don't lie. Come on. (sighs) Failing to rest is one of those respectable sins that not only in American culture, but in Western, like, church culture will get you pats on the back and attaboys if you just work hard and don't actually rest. I would dare say that if we treated other sins like sexual immorality with the same type of flippancy that we take God's commandment to rest, all of us would probably need to be under church discipline. I'm going to tell you seven things about the gift of rest. And I'm just starting with that. The first one is this. Rest really is a gift from God. Rest really is a gift from God. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is speaking with this group of religious leaders and he does something and, and they challenge him and he says, look, first of all, he says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. That's a big thing that Jesus claims. But what he says in there is a really profound thing. He says, man was not created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man. Now these religious leaders, I think in a well-meaning effort to honor God, had put together a bunch of rules and regulations and codes to help people really honor God, his good and helpful commandment to rest. All of God's commandments are good for us, amen? 
But, but this commandment for rest is particularly good for us. And Jesus said, we're not created to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created to be a blessing for us. But number two, rest is really hard to do. Does that strike anyone as odd? Like, like why would it be so hard to rest? Why would it be so hard to stop, to breathe, to pause? You would think we'd all be taking God up on that offer every day, constantly. But you can read like in Exodus 16, when God first gives the people the manna, he says, hey, remember, collect it for six days. On day six, collect some extra. Do nothing on day seven. What do the people instantly do? Collect it on day seven. What happens to it? Rots and has worms in it. Very gross. I find it hard to rest. There's something very good about working hard. Amen? Like, do any of you like to feel productive? I, 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 I really like to feel productive. But there's an addiction to productivity and to doing that comes, and we're, we're searching for meaning, we're searching for validation and identity and purpose and all of this stuff, and rest can be really hard to do. Number three, in Christ... We have the freedom to observe rest in different ways. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you regarding Sabbath. You know, the base command is you do your regular work and then you don't do your regular work. And these are conversations that predate the coming of Christ and, and the, the, you know, kind of the Christianization of the faith. These are conversations that followers of, of the one true God were having before Jesus came. And rabbis are wrestling with it. And what does it mean to do your regular work? And, and for example, one of the things they talked about is like medical professionals. Like do all doctors, nurses, firefighters, police, whatever, do all of them need to all observe the Sabbath on the same day? Because then people are going to be dying, <laughs> right? So they, they, you know, they wrestled with this. Well, like obviously the command to preserve life is, is a more weighty and important command than resting. And so, so we can observe it in some different ways, right? What if, some of you are nurses or you have a rotating type of schedule and you don't get to just rest, you know, Friday night to Saturday night every single week. Is that okay? Yeah, it's okay. But you're not free not to rest. You're not free not to take a day and rest. Some people are like, well, you know, the way I rest is by, you know, chopping firewood and cleaning my roof and running 27 errands and taking my, like, that's not rest. It's just not rest. There is freedom and how we express it. Uh, you know, and like even Jesus said, yeah, you're going to pull your sheep out of a ditch on the Sabbath. That's fine. It's just, yeah, pull the sheep out of the ditch. They were really, the, the religious leaders were mad at Jesus for healing somebody on the Sabbath. He's like, guys, really? Come on. There is freedom, but there's not freedom <clears throat> to not rest. I'll just say this, like, for some of you who are students, your life is homework. What would it mean to take a day and you don't do your regular work? Now all the parents are like, please tell them to do your homework. Yes, do your homework. But what about actually honoring the Lord's command? For some of you who are stay-at-home moms and your life is dishes and meal prep and laundry, am I getting too close? Am I, am, I, uh, am I meddling here? Is this okay? Mm. 
Rest can be expressed in different ways, but we're not free not to rest. Number four, rest is not the same as laziness. Okay? Rest is not just checking out and ignoring your responsibilities. Rest is not scrolling on your phone on social media for four hours. Like, I'm sorry, there's nothing inherently sinful with watching a TV show, but like binge watching three seasons of The Office and then saying, yes, I Sabbath, that's not rest as God would define it. Your mind is full of activity, you're still going, you're still thinking. Number five, rest recognizes God as creator. In Exodus 20, when the commandment of resting comes, it says, for remember that in six days, God created the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day, he rested. So it recognized that God's creator. Look, you and I can create things, you and I can do things, but there is only one true creator. And when we stop, we are forced to acknowledge the fact that it's him and not me. Number six, rest recognizes God as provider. Leviticus 25, six says, if you will rest, I will take care of you. How many, just be honest, how many of you don't rest because you're full of fear and anxiety that if you don't just keep working, it's either not going to get done or God won't provide for you or whatever. Anybody? And number seven, rest recognizes God as redeemer. It is so fascinating that the two different times where the Ten Commandments come, the Sabbath rest command has a totally different reason. In Exodus 20, it says you shall rest because God created and he rested on the seventh day. But in Deuteronomy, when it comes back, it says you shall rest for you will remember that you were slaves in Egypt. You know what slaves don't get to do? Yeah. Slaves don't get to say, oh, you know, I just need to take a personal day. Dear slave master, I I just really need a mental health day. It is toil, it is labor, it is work, it is you are enslaved and you just cannot stop. And for us as Christians, we've experienced the ultimate redemption. Redemption that has come through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When John writes his gospel in John 19, he tells us that one of the things that Jesus cried out when he is dying on the cross, atoning for the sins of the world, sins like failing to rest, Jesus cries out, it is finished. And for us as Christians, so much of our failure to rest is not living in that reality. We're still trying to prove something to God. We're still trying to prove something to ourselves. We're still trying to provide for ourselves something that God has already given to us in Jesus Christ. We're trying to overcome the curse of Genesis 3 of thorns and thistles when Jesus has a crown of thorns on his head, conquering over the curse for us. And the author of Hebrews says we're invited to enter into God's rest There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God for whoever enters God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. And when we enter into that rest today, it's a foretaste of the eternal rest that we're gonna enjoy with Jesus. 
How many of you look forward to the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things and the new heavens and the new earth and the ultimate year of Jubilee coming when we will experience rest and work in proper harmony and relationship with God the way that it should be? Anybody long for that day? I do. And so when you rest, you're proclaiming that there's a future day coming. Jesus finished the work on the cross and there's a future day coming where we're going to experience it forever. So one day out of seven, we pause and we think on Jesus and we rest. And maybe, just maybe, if you slowed down and stopped running and stopped pursuing all of these things of vanity, you might be able to hear the same words that Gabriel said to Daniel, that you are greatly loved. Some of you are just running and I'm running, and we're pursuing thing after thing after thing, and some of them are just really good things. But it has been a long time since you just sat quietly in prayer, not saying a bunch of stuff, just sitting, to hear the voice of the Lord speak. You are not just loved, greatly loved. Christ died to redeem you. And by obeying his good commandment to rest, we get to experience that today and get to proclaim it for the future. So real briefly, let me just offer you four quick thoughts, practical tips that might help you in this. Number one, I want to invite you to evaluate your rest. Is it intentional, regular, and Christ-focused? Intentional meaning like you didn't just collapse. (laughs) Whoops, looks like I'm resting now. Regular, like I haven't taken a day off in three months. Okay, that's... Not as regular as one in seven. And like I said, Christ-focused. Yeah, you could watch a Seahawks game on your day of rest. Might not be particularly restful how they play. But I'm just meaning like, given to the Lord. Lord, I'm doing this for you. Number two, make a plan, stick with it, and make yourself accountable. For some of you, it's easier. Your work week's pretty regular, it's pretty normal. For others of you... Schedule's complicated, kids, all those sorts of things. You need to make a plan and you need to stick with it and you need to let somebody else hold you accountable. A spouse, a friend, community group member, leader. Say, hey, I need to be more regular in my rest. Number three, make a commitment to not do your regular work. And I'll leave that between you and the Holy Spirit to ascertain and figure it out. You know, what is regular? What are the things that you're always doing for me personally? I don't work on my sermons Friday night through Saturday night. I actually am accidentally Jewish in my observance personally for Sabbath. And no, I don't do it perfect. But, but because teaching and writing and reading and studying and stuff is so much of my regular work, once dinner time comes on Friday, I close my laptop. I don't answer emails. I don't, I try not to. I don't work on my sermon. We eat dinner as a family on Saturday night. Kids start heading to bed. Open it back up. Do some more prep. Something like that, maybe. And then lastly, number four, when various things arise, ask yourself, can this wait? Do I have to do this right now? Or could I just say, maybe this could wait? As we go to the table of the Lord here in a moment, as we begin to sing, we invite our younger students class in to join with us. Let's go before the Lord with an attitude of rest. God, I repent for myself and even if I may dare to repent corporately for us as a church family that I and we do not rest 
as often or as well as we should. God, in doing that, we're denying a good gift that you've given to us. And for that, we're sorry. But Jesus, we thank you for the hope of your grace, that there is rest available to us to each and every day, each and every week, and throughout our lives, pointing to an eternity of rest in you. Jesus, would you return soon? Would you come soon? And until that day, would you help us to labor for your glory and to rest in the finished work of Jesus? Amen. Pastor Shane. Good to be with you guys this morning. So the question has been asked, do we fail to obey and to enjoy the rest that God has created us for? I do. I do. I didn't see how many of you raised your hands a few minutes back when Pastor Aaron asked that question, but uh, I'm guessing and hoping that it was almost every hand in the room that was able to raise their hand did so. The reality is that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Our rest is found in him. And we are to seek after that rest, and we are to practice it. So how are you doing in that, Sound City? How are we doing in that? Well, maybe that's one of the things, as we turn now to a time of enjoying the Lord's Supper together, maybe that's one of the things that we can be reflecting on. Because the instructions, the first instructions about the Lord's Supper that we receive that are documented for us here in uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, um, they talk about that. They talk about examining ourselves, and maybe that's one of the things we can examine when we get to that point. If you received the elements, if you got those when you came through the door this morning, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open those up and get them ready. But I'd also encourage you just to hold on to them a minute. And we're going to read those instructions from 1 Corinthians, as we do most weeks. And I'll do that for us right now. This is the word of the Lord. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself or herself then, and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So again, these are very familiar words to us uh, that the Apostle Paul gives us here in 1 Corinthians. But my encouragement to you and my encouragement to me, uh, let's not be so familiar with these words that we just pass over them. Um, as if they aren't asking something pretty significant of us. They are. Um, Let us not fail to obey their call to each one of us to really examine our own hearts and to really consider um, what God would have us do in light of what we've heard today. So as the band plays, I want to encourage you to spend some time in silent prayer uh, with God, just examining your heart, considering how he'd have each one of us respond to seeking and practicing the rest that we have in Jesus. And then when you're done with uh, your time with God in prayer, you can go ahead and take the elements, eat and drink, and then we'll continue after that.